Welcome to Gross Anatomy. Lauren, are we live? Yes, we are live, Dr. Cohen. We're live, Lauren? We are live on Gross Anatomy Podcast, where we explore the sights, smells, and sounds of medicine and how it pertains to pop culture, meaning books, movies, TV, and the world around us. And I am joined with the host... Dr. Jason Cohen. Here I am. And who are you? I'm Lauren Taylor, and I would love for you to introduce our very special guest. Today, you know, one of our topics that we love to discuss is mentors. And I must say that sitting to my left, to a large degree, is someone I consider a friend and a mentor. Uh, And Dr. Ricky Theodoric Hendricks, who really, really, you know, even though we, our practices are different, we never really you know, I, I never trained with him. He's a mentor of life to me, uh, uh, which is one of the reasons I'm super excited to have him here. He's actually somebody who saved me on many occasions. And one was when I was in Central Africa and asked him to meet me and ask him what he was doing the next day. Of course, he was doing surgery. And I asked him, what could he what could I do to put him on a plane to meet me in Paris to meet to, to see a patient? And he did it. Wow. And uh, we met in Paris. He didn't disappoint. Um, Although I did develop a bad stomach bug. Remember that? Yeah, but I was feeling good, so it <laughs> yeah. didn't bother me. Yeah. Yes. But uh, it was something where we were meeting a group of, of Parisian doctors that were heads of their departments and to discuss a patient that we had both treated. And um, she was a lady that, that we both knew and we were taking care of and we were being challenged. One, fortunately, I told her that one day you would want a second opinion about this because this was a problem that was going on for a series of months. And, um, and that happened where we, we actually talked to and, and were challenged by some doctors. And, and Dr. Cohen came in and saved the day. He was really, he remarkably understood the case and presented it well. And she got better and we lived happily ever after. But who else could I call and ask me, meet me in Paris the next day? And that was that was Dr. Cohen. So we've had some adventures. In fact, we we kind of went in and out of Africa together on a, on a project we had there, a patient we were taking care of. And uh, we never were there at the same time. Unfortunately, no. no. But we were in and out of there. So we got a chance to. But you know how you, you know, I want to talk about you. But I, 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 when we designed this office that we're in right now, you were a big part of our figuring out how to design it. We were looking at the space, which is interesting. You know, most doctors, they want a doctor's office to sit in a big wasted room of a space where they could put up their diplomas and put up their, all their awards and, and have a desk and a computer. And Ricky made me realize I'd already known it, but it, but I didn't realize I knew it until Ricky made it obvious that what a waste of space that is. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you're designing an office, it should be about rooms to see patients in and just a place where we do our charting and computer work. And especially today where rent is so expensive and, mm-hmm. and making an office is, is so um, challenging. You know, you said to me, why, why, are you, why do you need a doctor's office? You need rooms to see patients and, and just a place for you guys to sit and turn out your charts. And we also talked about a surgery center. You opened my eyes to a lot of things. And, and the other reason why we get along and why I wanted you on the podcast is, is for whatever reason, good or bad, we both, you more than I, um, well, we both love the arts, but, but you keep... You're, you you work harder to keep a foot in the arts realm, way harder than I do, or you're better at it. Than, like one of the reasons why Lauren and I started this podcast is for me to keep some kind of creative thing going. You know, in talking to you, you've always been able to kind of juggle it and find that balance, which I'm very envious of. Well, I, I found it later. That was I'm from Oklahoma originally, and it's not a big space for art there. So I discovered so many things in art through the practice of medicine. And, and that took me in a direction and it was exciting and medicine can be demanding, but it, it, it was something that, that sparked my interest. And so that was. So when you were a kid, you weren't an artsy kid. You were just like the science typical pre-med kid. See this, I don't, this is stuff I don't know about. And Dr. Hendricks, can I just interject? You are the first guest we've ever had from Oklahoma. That's also where I'm from. Really? What part of Oklahoma? Yeah, I'm from Tulsa. 
I'm from Tulsa as well. You are? You wow. guys are ladies? Wow. That's awesome. Well, I went to Washington High School. There. Oh, you did? That's a, I went to um, Memorial High School. So you went to a better high school than I did. But yeah, that's great. Any chance you would know people? No, Tulsa is a huge city. There's plus, no when way. I was there, it was completely 100% segregated. Was it? Was completely. Yeah, I was, I was there a little ahead of you. And so it was, uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a segregated area. And in that arena, the people that they considered, the black kids that they considered, I won't say gifted, the more advantaged, then, then they pushed those kids into science mm-hmm. or math. But there was no, no, nothing in math for, for a kid. It was basically science. Okay. Um, and so I was always directed in that direction. So not the, not the arts, not English, nothing. No, I mean, my if father was an attorney. But but he knew that it was better for a minority to, to stem, to, yeah, to medicine. stem right into medicine. Medicine was the easiest one, and so I was always pushed. I was given things if I participated in in in, in medicine than more than anything else. So was it something you were interested in, or was you kind of just nudged along that route and didn't know any better? It was the only thing I knew. It was introduced to me at an early age, and uh, tell my doctor I want to be a doctor. Everybody want to be a doctor. I want, actually was a veterinarian for a long time, but yeah, it was basically you wanted to be a vet. Yeah, that's been really important in Oklahoma. They take care of herds of cattle. They take care. They have helicopters. They do. They move around the state a lot. It's not like taking care of small dogs like they do in Los Angeles. Hmm. Did you have that vet experience also? No, I mean, I wish I had the desire to be a doctor that I was as good at science as you guys were, uh, were but that was not my path. So anyway, yeah, it's good meeting you. Coming it's nice to meet a fellow Oklahoman. We're in an area that we talk about a lot, the 100th anniversary for the Tulsa riot. Yes. And I just finished my script on that. You did? You wrote a script on that? Script on that, yeah. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I recently watched Russell Westbrook's documentary. But what I was, I told Dr. Cohen um, recently that in school, we never learned that that even happened. Like, we, no we, one nobody. even talked about it. My father would talk about it. And that was, in, and he talked about his experiences. Tell me what it is, because I'm ignorant. The, the only, well, before 9-11, the only city in the United States that was ever bombed from the air was Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that's when they had a, what they call a riot, Tulsa riot, or a massacre, we called it, that um, they completely destroyed the entire Black part of the, of the Ooh, city. The government? No, the, the racists in the area that were responding to a false call of a rape. And because of that, they burned down the entire Black area of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Wow. The entire, they, everything, 1,400 homes. I mean, everything was destroyed. It was the most lucrative place in America for a Black person to live at the time. Mm-hmm. What year was this? This was 1921. And, yeah, they, uh, they referred to it as Black Wall Street, right? Because Black Wall Street, because it was, it was ahead of Harlem, was ahead of New York, uh, because we, Harlem didn't own their property. They had a, a, a racist concept in in Tulsa, I mean, I'll say Tulsa because I'm not sure about Oklahoma, but Tulsa, and that was, you couldn't live on a block where your race wasn't three quarters of that block. And that was to keep black people from integrating. But what they set up actually was an area of Tulsa called North Tulsa, and specifically Greenwood, where black people owned everything. They owned their own wow. property, they owned their homes, they're on the businesses, stores, everything. I mean, your dad was there? Well, no, no, he wasn't there at the time because he was pretty young at that time. But he uh, came there afterwards as they were rebuilding. Wow! And so, um, huh. so it was a really it's a unique and remarkable area that it was the first huge. It's not true. It wasn't the first huge race riot, but it was one that caused the most damage. Wow! And so that's what we we just yeah. and we were never we never learned about that. Yeah. Right. And they just yeah, recently had the 100th anniversary. So now more people are becoming aware of it, finally. Yes. Yes. So, and I wrote a script about it based on how long talking about I just finished the script two weeks ago. I'm so envious. Of I know. Script. And we're going to get there. So where did you go to college? Oklahoma University. And you were pre-med? Microbiology. Did you do art stuff at all? I just had one art class. And it was the most remarkable class, the most remarkable class. When I sat down, somebody, the instructor brought out um, some overalls that had been dipped in concrete and set and sat allowed to solidify. And um, he asked all the students there to write down what they thought about this art. He said, my very good friend created this art. Let me know, write down what you think of the art. 
you know, my kids could do it. It's completely ridiculous. I mean, who would think that this is even art? Why do they call it art? And he picked up the papers and he read all the papers to us. And then he read the papers of what people thought about different phases of art, about the impressionistic time. And when they talked about impressionism, they said the exact same thing. And that stuck with me, that I knew nothing about art, but the fact that people then thought what my group thought about that. And I carried it through my, my mind about it. I didn't study any art until I came to actually to Cedar Sinai as a resident in, at OBGYN and as a UCLA student. And um, the chairman of the department was a big art collector. What's, what was the name? Mac Wade. Dr. Mac Wade. He was the chairman of the department of, here at, at Cedars. You did your residency here? Yes. Oh, wow. In OBGYN? In OBGYN. And so... He, at, at the time, I was the only black resident in the entire hospital, not only in the department, but in the entire hospital, I was the only black. And somehow he, he thought I was unhappy. I never was unhappy. You know, I'm just not that kind. I, I enjoy my life. But he just- Why did he think you were unhappy? Because he just felt that I was- Because you were black? Because the only black person in the entire hospital. Right, right. The only black doctor. But uh, he just took me under his arm and just, it took me under his wing, I should say, and said, um, I'd like, you know, I'd like to show you about art. And I said, you know, I don't know anything about art. It was a good idea. He had, he had saved the life of a, of, a, uh, of a very prominent artist that, um, and so that person taught him about art. Mm. And so I would be in the middle of my working day here as an intern, or second year resident, actually, when he would call me up, and the person at the office, the person at the Nursing desk would say, excuse me, Dr. Wade would like to speak to you. And so I thought maybe I messed something up, made a mistake on a patient. And I said, hello, Dr. Wade, how are you? He said, how are you doing? Well, what are you doing? I said, I have Dr. Weinstein's patient in here, and she has she's the two centimeters. And I have, I started explaining all the medical things I was doing. And he said, well, but what are you doing right now? I said, well, I'm, I'm on call. And he said, I want you to get in your car and come up to my house because we're hanging, hanging paintings. <laughs> and I said, Doctor Wade, Doctor Wade, I can't just walk away. I'm, 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 I'm on call. It's just like eleven o'clock at night. I can't just walk away. I said Doctor Hendricks, who's the, the chairman of the department. I said, Well, you are Doctor Wade. He said, Well, the chairman of the department wants you to get in the car and come up to my house, and we're going to hang paintings tonight. <laughs> and so he taught me about paintings. And and when I finished my residency, um, I kind of ventured into a, an arena that. I hadn't been in before, and that was learning about art, specifically about movies, because being in Hollywood, being in Oklahoma, coming from Oklahoma, we don't know about things, about how movies are made. And here, when I got here, I found out that there was a, an entity, a group of people that actually made the films that I would look at on television on the movie screen. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where I started going into the situation of uh, being involved in art. That's amazing. And so that's when I decided did it for a long time through UCLA and then decided to use the graduate program at American Film Institute. Wait, so when did you, so that was your residency. When did you first create something? Whether it be a drawing, a painting, a write something, what level of your, was it during residency? No, no, it was after. I, would, I had become a, an established OBGYN with time on my hands. Already? Yes. Practice theaters. I opened in this building. I opened yeah. the uh, here, and uh, I decided to learn about film. And I learned about pre-production, then production. Then How soon into your career? Five years. Okay. Five years. I was okay. I was established. I established something really early. I mean, it, I picked out a practice that I really liked, and that's the practice I wanted to have. I wanted a spectrum of patients, from very rich to very poor, from very black to very white. Paul Short, I just I wanted a, just a just a range of people, and I got that practice really rapidly. Why do you think you did? I was known at Cedars, and Cedars was kind of a place where people would come for medical care, and they didn't have a person that had a multiracial practice here before, and I just set it up like that. So, what was your first thing you did creatively? Well, do you remember? I mean, I could say it on film. The first thing I did creatively was very probably marry an actress because at that time <laughs> I decided to uh, to go to to film school, and so I had to create a film to go to this graduate program in film school, 
And so I created a three-minute uh, uh, drama, mm-hmm. and uh, we sent it to, to AFI, and they accepted me there. And so I did three films while I was at AFI. And you were practicing OBGYN. Practice OBGYN. How were you doing that? That's interesting. I was really well established early. So when I made up my mind to go to film school, film school was from 9.30 in the morning to whenever it finished. And it was usually after about six o'clock. And we had to make three films. Well, they had a rule because they wanted to really build professionalism into the art of filmmaking. What they planned on doing was making sure at 9.30 they closed the door. So you had, and, and, and the, it, it, was, it was a set schedule. So you couldn't come late. I had yeah. to be there. So I saw patients in the morning from 630 <laughs> in the morning till nine. That's why you're still an early bird. eh? That's probably right. Mm-hmm. And so that was the only time that that I would see patients in the office. The hospital, would, I mean, the hospital, I'm sorry, the, the, the film school would allow me to deliver babies. They said that I could do that. So they knew you were a doctor. They knew I was a doctor. Now, they said it, it was against the rules to, to practice, to, to stay in film school and make a living. But they allowed me to do it because I did it early in the morning. And what I found was that you could, if you saw patients during the day, two o'clock, everybody kind of talked, how's everybody doing? How's the kid doing? How's everybody? Everybody was kind of quiet and kind of took a deep breath. And it took a long time to see patients. But in the morning, my patients would not cancel their day. So they would come in ready to see a doctor really quickly. And they knew me already because I was a practicing physician after about five years that they, they would come in, we would do an exam, we would do what we needed to do, we'd do the scheduling we needed to do, and we'd move off. So I could see a lot of patients between 6.30 in the morning to 9 o'clock. Because the they morning. were still going to work that day. They were going to work. They wouldn't have to cancel that day. That's smart. Although I, I can't do early morning like that. Yeah, I was doing early. Because I had to. Because yeah. I had the, the school required me to be there. And at 9.30, they locked the door. So I what mean, do you do if you're delivering a baby? Well, they, they, they let me have to deliver a baby, uh, you know. So you always had an excuse, even if you weren't delivering a baby. Well, yes, he's saying same over the week, of course. But yes, okay. I mean, Dr. Cohen, have you ever heard of anyone doing something like that? That's amazing. Like practicing totally film school. So I don't know if you know, when I moved out here, part, part of the draw was, you know, we talk about Cedar sinai We talked about it on our last podcast, um, you know, the, the, the hospital to the stars. That's what I knew about Cedar sinai but the other draws, I knew, I, I kind of knew I wanted to write a little bit too. So during, I don't remember if it was in my last year of fellowship or my first year of practice, there's a UCLA writing program. You know, it's not like a degree or anything, but it's one, it's a night evening program where you're supposed to turn out a script. So I did that for two terms, I think. And then they had a more formal program that met two or three times a week that I was all set to do and started doing that. And then I think we had had our first, either our second or third kid. And my wife turned to me and said, you're not doing that anymore. (laughs) I dropped that program. I didn't get a refund or anything. I dropped that program. And and, and as you know, Dr. Cohen is quite an artist. He actually does a lot of painting Mm -hmm. around his office. Yes, I do know. So you finished film school. So you completed. I finished film school and, uh, I had, by that time, being at the hospital, I knew a certain number of actresses and actors, and they performed for me in the film that I needed to get in film school. Wow. So I had people that, that were in that film for me. And um, so I developed kind of a, a, a group of people that I knew. And so when I finished Anyone school, who's a known name today? Who was in your short stuff? Um, Michael Nuri. I don't know if you know yeah. Michael yeah. Nuri was in it. Yes, Cherie Isn't Michael Wilson. Nuri from Flashdance? Flashdance, yeah. Yes. Oh, Michael. wow. Remember yes. Michael Nuri from Flashdance? No, I have to look it up. No, He's the it. main guy from Flashdance. Yes, that's him. Handsome dude. Yeah, yeah he yeah. was. And he, he was there for me. Um, a lot of people I knew, Sherry, uh, Cherie Wilson was in the film for mm-hmm. me. Uh, she was, the, she was for those people who remember Dallas, she was, uh, she was J.R. Ewing's wife. Oh, wow. And she, uh-huh. she was in my, my film for me. Your short film. That's great. And, um, and, you still have and my it? wife at the time. Yes, but they asked us not to show any of, any of our short films. Any of those are the three that we made. They said, because you none of you know what you're doing, so you don't want to show these people. <laughs> and they're right. So um, so that, that's how I got involved with that. And for some reason, I was also into photography, and I wanted to learn about color, and 
I jumped from there right into Otis Parson in, in art school. I went in there to study photography and I fell in love with oils. I fell in love with the smell of oils. I fell in love with oil paint. Oil paint. Love yeah. oil paint. Just how it moves around, how you can come back to it in three or four days, how you can take it off, how you can put it back on. Her brother is an amazing artist. We had him on one of our podcasts. He's a fantastic artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, a, he's wonderful. And I noticed people from, he's, I assume he's from Oklahoma as well. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. People from Oklahoma have a little, they, they aren't exposed to art but they have a little far out art about them that, that they, they don't think like everybody else. I mean, it's like you start studying artists, like and the artists are kind of one of a kind people like Rauschenberg or Jasper Johns, those people, they're lonely. They're, they're, they're by from themselves. Oklahoma? No, no, no. Oh. But, but they're pe- people from different places that are by themselves. And you get to a place where artists congregate and everybody feels so much better about themselves because they're pe- people that were from places that they were the only kind, you know. Yeah. And, and so weirdos. Yeah, they were they were different. You're yeah. right. They, yeah. they, they didn't want to be like the rest of the crew, they, and, and they couldn't understand it. And they were taught that they were weird. Yeah. And they were treated like that. And then soon, you know, they they get together and find out it's two or three of them that are alike. And, and next thing you know. They're so happy with each other. That is, and, and well, that's why I think you and I love each other a little yeah, bit. That's where it gets with that art yeah. thing. And that's why we love you, Lauren. Yes. <laughs> but no, <laughs> I think that's true about my brother, because when he came downtown L.A., he started exploring more, like, different mediums, meeting new artists. Like, yeah. that happened. And all of a sudden, I had a studio downtown for a long time, and I just loved being down there. As you start meet, meeting with other people, that sometimes you don't get what they do and why they do it but they don't really get what you do and why you do either, you know? Yeah. And so you, it moves around in a, in a way you, you, it's nice. It's probably nice to develop your artistic motivation away from the scene. So that when you get there, you, you, you're actually more authentic. Sometimes I found in films in, in art school, especially in film school too, a little people are interested in being the artist and it's, and it's all bullshit. <laughs> yeah. It's know, just and, like theatrics, not and, yeah, exactly. And then and when you meet somebody who's a real artist, you can spell it, you smell it, you, you just see it with them. And they're really artists and, and you appreciate it. Sometimes you can spot them and you can say things like you can keep up with the art. And they say, how did you know I was an artist? Because you look, you, you're an artist. I can just tell. You know, and, and so anyway, that's why a place like Los Angeles gets to be important. New York started that same kind of movement, you know, abstract expressionism and, you know, and for, out of Germany. And it, it, so many things develop. When people are kind of apart with it, when they get together, the synergism kind of increases with, with who they are, and and they they get a little uh, the authority to really create. Then, I think. Yeah. how do you yeah. find the balance of it all, or do you feel like you well, don't find the balance? Well, you you never find a balance. It, it's like it's like walking a tightrope. I mean, sometimes you're you're imbalanced and you're swinging wildly, and sometimes you're walking kind of straight, but you're never just walking down the straight of the tightrope. It's always an imbalance. And, and, um, and I kind of, I'm kind of drawn to that. I mean, we were talking about the fact that, I, that I'm studying Chinese medicine now. It's all about yin and yang. It's about balance. It's not about, it's, which is totally different from Western medicine. Western medicine is you see sick people and you try to cure them. Eastern medicine is different. You try to establish a balance, understanding that you can never get that balance but you're always trying to maintain that balance. And so that, that's why, you know, you start noticing those kind of things about art is that you never, you can never get there. I mean, I imagine it's what people who play golf say they never get a good golf game. So, mm. so I don't know. If you could pick one thing, what would it be? Would it be Eastern medicine? Would it be, you know, a, a screenwriter, director? You know, say you could pick one thing and that's going to, or the OBGYN or, I know that's a weird question and a hard question. No, well, well, no, it, well it, it's not really that difficult because the answer is so clear is that you can't do it. Yeah. It's impossible. I mean, if, if, you're, if you have multiple interests, I mean, art, people who are in the arts bring in things out of everywhere. You, you, you don't get it out of painting. You, you, you become a great painter when you start watching people who take good pictures and you become a good photographer when you start watching people who edit well or, or who act well. I mean, it, it, there's so many different ways of, of creating, 
that you understand that it's never done. You know, it's never. I mean, people like I mentioned Matisse a few minutes ago. Suzanne, Suzanne, Matisse, Suzanne, Suzanne. Before all of his uh, openings, when they opened the door, he would be in there still working on that. He could. It, it was never done. Coltrane on the saxophone. He would be coming from the bathroom because you know on his way to the stage practicing. Mm. Miles Davis, the people who worked with him say always said. He pays you to practice on stage. He doesn't want if you stay, if you do the same thing that you did when they had group practices, he would really be upset. Wow. He wanted it was always an exploration to him. You see these artists who are really trying to create. That's that's what they do. So where what what prompted you deciding rather than trying to pursue more of the your arts what what made you say you know what let me go back to school and do eastern medicine in my mind i love you but i think you're nuts like what i you know no disrespect i mean love lovely and nuts like i think you're i mean the one thing about the one thing that was happening in my practice and and you mentioned what which would i do probably the most important thing that happened to me was going into obstetrics and gynecology Delivering babies, dealing with women. That was the thing that probably was the most important thing that happened to me. But at one place, while I was practicing medicine, some things I noticed, and, and that was that there was another form of, of medicine that I would ask people to, to participate in just to see if it worked. And it did a lot of times. And that is, for example, if a lady, we have an infertility patient and we're trying to, to get somebody pregnant and is really having this difficult time. And we're at the place where, where it's going to require a lot of surgery. It's going to require a lot of medication. It's going to require a lot of money. It's going to require a lot of time. That It's really a hard place. And at that place, sometimes I would say, let's go over and talk to people involved in traditional Chinese medicine. Let's give it a couple of months and let's see what happens. And a lot of those ladies would come back pregnant. Yeah. A lot of those ladies who are having problems would come back without those problems being there. A lot of those patients would get well. And I look back now during a time when I was not studying Eastern medicine, where people who I really thought that, that, I, that I couldn't cure, that I just couldn't help them, that now I understand that there's a modality that is out there that, that really helps them out. And it's real. This is a medicine that's been practiced for 2,500 years. And they're good at it. Yeah. And they're a fifth of the population of the planet. I mean, it, when you think about it, between China and India, that's a fifth of the population of our entire planet. Um, that's a lot of people. Did, so, yeah. I'm sorry. Did you work with the Tao of Wellness guys? Yes, yes. Those are the guys. Those are the guys. Mao and Dao. Mao and Dao. Those guys are amazing. And they are actually the founders of the um, the school you're in. The school I'm in. So those guys are unbelievable. And they're just and I've seen them deal with Western doctors. I've worked with them a little bit. And they are just fantastic. They are fantastic. They know the Western part, and they are just on it. They're 38th generation Chinese doctors. Yeah. So they are really they're 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 spectacular. So those are the guys that I would talk with. And so when I decided after 40 years of delivering babies, 24 hours, I said, you know, I want to sleep every night like Dr. Colin Colin does. You know, I I really want to sleep every night. But when I gave it up, something was missing. And at that time, I started teaching OBGYN at the traditional Chinese medical college, University Yosan. I was treating I was teaching on the graduate at the uh, doctoral level. And so because of that, and because my children, my kids were in school up in San Francisco by now, I would take courses up there in traditional Chinese medicine. And, you know, a nine-month course where I would go back and forth. And I met a guy that I was really impressed with. And I said, I really want to know where all your lectures are, because I would want to go to all your lectures that are in California. Now, he goes all over the world, but I've been in California. Let me know where you lecture. And he said, this, I can tell what you're after, and that's not going to work. It's not going to work for you unless you take 
four years out and do a master's program in this. He's taking four years. He's doing four years. So I'm that's why I think you're crazy. Year. Like if you were telling me it was a year yeah. or a year and a half, like that's a and I'm old. huge commitment. And I'm old. So it's like, <laughs> it's like everybody, I'm older than the Knee Brothers. I'm older than <laughs> you are. All the, yes. I'm older than the students. I'm actually, I'm, you know, I'm a student in the master's program. I'm teaching in the doctoral program <laughs> and I'm on the board there too. Wow. So it's like, I'm inundated with Chinese myths and I'm not that good of a student. I'm really not that because I like being in school. I like being a student, but I don't take exams regularly. I mean, certain things I'm just not doing that I really should. The dean calls me in and says, Ricky, you got to start. So, <laughs> but so, you're in school like a full-time student right full-time. now, aren't you? I'm full-time. Yeah. I know. you're. Every time I talk to you, I'm in finals now. I'm yeah, in this now. I'm full-time. I, I couldn't go back. It's a full-time. It's a full-time. It's a full-time practice. It's a lot, so much to learn. And it's in Chinese. <laughs> so you have to learn, like, I have to learn 360 herbs in Chinese. And I have to be able to fit them into... 82 formulas, of which it may be 10 or 12 herbs in each formula. So it takes a lot of, of work. I mean, it's, it's... And you're still making art. Yeah. You just said you wrote a script. Yes, I, so, I, I just finished the script. I, I just finished the So hours. that's what I, I... God, I envy you. Like, how do you find the time to do that stuff? Where, 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 when do you write? Well, you must be question. very, you must be no, very dedicated. It's just, it's just opposite. It's just opposite. Because I'm not. I can't. So I write when I, when I, when I hear it. I never hear it. I, I, you know, you know when I hear it when I'm sleeping or in the shower. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I need one of those things where you put the electrodes on your brain and it writes it down. But seriously, how? When do you write? Like, how do you sit and write? There's a director and a writer named John Sales. He's yeah, like, he's very great. I. I know somebody, I'm trying not to mention any names. I knew somebody that was paid to go to Paris and write for three months. He talked people into, listen, I can't write here. I must be in Paris. He goes to Paris. He writes for three months. and He comes back with a very mediocre script. Three months is not a long time to sell a stone script, but he comes back. He says, I'm there. I can do it for three months, maybe four. And it was a very mediocre script. And they gave the idea and that script to John Sales. And somebody showed me what he wrote. And he wrote on napkins. He wrote everywhere. He, he dictated things, matchbook covers, in the shower, wherever he could. And he came out with a script that was just awesome. <laughs> but it was the, he wrote a lot of wonderful scripts. And he just wrote when he, when he felt it. And he was really good. So you, That would you, take me a lifetime, though. You know? That's it. I'm in the middle of my lifetime now. You know, that's where we <laughs> but you are. You said you just finished the script. I just finished it. Now, well, I, I was motivated by Tulsa by the fact that this is the 100th anniversary. And when I knew it was coming up, I started writing the script maybe 18 months ago. That's amazing. And so I started writing you, the script. And, and then you've rewritten it, it and you've already done it. I have no idea. I've rewritten it so many times. So how, I, when, when are you writing? I wrote this morning. I wrote today. I'm still Do you writing. deliberately wake up and say, I'm going to write from a to Z time and every day or something? Do you set it? It depends on what, what's going on that day. I mean, if I have if I have herbs that I need to know about, I'm kind of concentrating on those. If I finish an exam, the first thing I want to do is write. Now, I get some, some blowback from this. From you know? family? Yes. Yeah, that was my next question. Yes. And usually, it's not from your kids as a rule. Right. No, it, it's, it's usually from, from a significant partner. other. Yeah. It says, you know, you're always writing on script. I mean, you know, you, you're going to get that. You, you, you got to be able to take that heat. You have to say that. There's yes, no balance. There's no balance. As we just said, it, it's, it's a myth. No the work-life balance thing, I, t- I talk about it to, our, to my pre-med students. It's a myth. Work-life balance is a myth. That's true. You're absolutely right. But, and we're used, to, we're, we're used to putting in the dedication for the time because we're, when we're in medical school, we're in school from like 8.30 to 5, 5.30, and then we go home and study from six to seven hours so you go to sleep and you wake up the next day and you do it again and again. So you're accustomed to putting in the time. And even though you might not think you have the discipline, because I don't think I'm a very disciplined person at all. I just put in the time because I have to and because I want to. It's a selfish endeavor mm. that you just say to yourself. The only thing that keeps me going in this is that the people that mainly call me selfish 
are people who want me to do things for them as well. So I understand that I am selfish. I'm an only child. Maybe that helps. But now, how many people would want to create like Miles Davis to be the most creative jazz artist ever? That's one thing. But how many people would have wanted his life? That's, That's the true. problem. I what mean, was his life? I don't know much about his life. Hard. I mean, well, and it was it was the the one story, and I, a friend of ours introduced me to Miles Davis, and I had a wonderful time talking to him for a while. But I saw him getting ready to to to, to talk on a talk show, and, and he was sitting there, and they were getting setting up the cameras, and they were actually filming him while they were setting up these cameras. And um, he was sitting there, and they were getting the cameras ready, getting the sound, everybody's ready, we're getting ready. And, he was sitting there and he said, Miles Davis, and the, the most iconic player. Da, da, da. He said, yes, what's your life like? He was really soft-spoken. He said, well, up in the morning, I have a little breakfast, and then I practice for like seven hours. <laughs> Matter of fact, I ought to be practicing now. And he got up and walked out of that. And that, that was it. And that was it. And I, you could just get it. He was thinking... Why am I here doing this when all I want to do in my life is practice my craft? And that's what he did. People, and I keep talking about the artists in, in jazz because I really admire them because they really are people that put in a lot of time. John Coltrane would never be without his horn, except when it was in Hawk, when he, when he needed the money. You know? And so I think about that. It's, I don't think there is a, well, there is a work-life balance. It would be fun to have, I think. I just don't have it. Yeah. And I notice people who don't. And I'm kind of attracted. It's, it's like, again, if you divide the world up, and I do in the cowboys and farmers, you just got to figure out if you're a cowboy or if you're a farmer. The bad thing about cowboys is that they always crash and burn at the end. Farmers, they save it up, it gets right, they get it right, and they they don't have the highs and lows of the of the cowboys. But What are you? And I have great friends. I talked to one on the way here who's a really wild farmer. And then I have friends that are really meek and mild cowboys. And they got their names because a significant number of those people were black people. Mm. I mean, we are, we're always looking at cowboys as white people, you know, the Lone Ranger, who was actually a black guy. Mm. Um, and Roy Rogers, and the whole group. John Wayne. John Wayne was real. <laughs> but you know, the, those people, the, those after the Civil War was over, they gravitated toward a life where they would herd cattle from Texas up to Kansas City hmm. and then ride back down and get another herd. And that's what they did. Um, and that's the life that they lived. And you couldn't do anything but that because that's what but they crashed and burned at the end. They died earlier. The farmers would pull over and have crops and mm. understand the weather and have families. It's a different kind of set of people. When did you, how many years ago did you stop delivering babies? What made you decide to stop doing that? It was just time. I, yeah. th I thought it was time. Uh, I don't know. It was, I've been, like I said, number one, it's the best thing that happened to me. I've got a chance to meet so many wonderful people and expose myself to so many wonderful people through a very delicate time in, in people's lives. And uh, I mean, I, I think that I probably learned more from my patients than they learned from me. I mean, I, it was a just tremendous time in my life. But we were trained at a time, and it was a very lucky time of being trained. I was trained at Cedar Sinai, but we used UCLA as a place to train and county. And patients would come up from south of the border. And they wouldn't let them stay in San Diego. If they wanted to have medical care, they had to come all the way to Los Angeles. And so county was a good place to, for, for them to land, for, the, for them to get medical care. So we were there giving them that medical care. So I was very lucky in that I was with a group of people, with the, the people that invented the fetal monitor, Dr. Hahn, mm. people that were number one in cancer surgery and GYN. They were here. The person who invented the concept of infectious disease, um, he was here. Birth control pills. This was a really wonderful yeah. place to be. Yeah. That I accidentally found myself in a place where we really learned a lot 
more so than they did in New York. I mean, people thought people in Texas were really learning a lot. We were learning a lot more here. How'd you wind up out here? You didn't tell me that in on the West Coast. I'm always wanted to be in Los Angeles. Uh, Coming out of Oklahoma because of Hollywood. Not Hollywood. I didn't really know Hollywood. I just knew they were having fun out here. Yeah, that this was the place. Was the place to be. Yeah, Oklahoma was not as much fun as. Yeah, I mean Oklahoma. It's always it's just flat, and so here you have like the mountains, you have the ocean. It's just totally different. You had to you had to go one or two places. I thought east or west. Yeah, you couldn't go south, which was ridiculous. Right, nothing was really happening in the north. Maybe for for people in the and from out of Oklahoma, it may have been. My father always thought there weren't but three cities in the country. That was Chicago, St. Louis, and Kansas City. I mean, that was it. But, you know, he never wouldn't think about New York. Mm. And Los Angeles was made up of people that were not from here. I mean, yeah. You can meet somebody from Oklahoma here. You can meet somebody from, from New York, New Jersey. I mean, yeah. the, the people Don't come out New Jersey, here. New York. New York, sorry. No, sorry. Don't <laughs> <say> New York. <laughs> so, so, so that's what brought me out here was that the people were, it was different. It was a... So many different kinds of people out here. And it's a wonderful international city. When you yeah. look at it, the two international cities in this country are New York and, and, and Los Angeles. Yeah. I mean, they have pockets of people from different places in the world. There's no question about that. But you can walk through the, the streets of Los Angeles. here. so many different dialects and different languages. It's absolutely wonderful. You've been able to build up a real kind of concierge, VIP kind of... Hollywood practice. Yes. But how I did it was by making sure nobody got any different treatment in my office under any circumstances. And we've shared patients where I've been to their country where they are treated in such a way that when you understand how they must think we are just totally ridiculous around here, we make them wait too. Right. They have an appointment. They have to make that appointment. And we learn how to treat everybody the same. And that's why in medicine, it's so important to do that. I don't consider myself a concierge doctor at all. I really don't. That's because I've always treated everybody the same. And they really appreciated that. That people, and something else we found out in, in, in the patient that we talked about earlier. And that is when people try to treat them differently. They screw it up every time. That's very true. We have a way that we treat people. You have a way that you treat a normal delivery. And because a person is a billionaire, does not put them in a position to get any better care. That's what they don't get. Yeah. And that's the truth. That when you walk walk into your office, you're going to get the same exam that the person who works at at, at the Broadway is going to get. You're going to get the same exam as a teacher. Everybody's going to say, and you know what? They really appreciate that. Yeah. And that's what helped me in my practice. And that's, it helped me in so many different ways that, that it, it was just who I was. And, I, and, and then I really liked my patients. I liked the ones that couldn't, I mean, the thing of it is, if somebody couldn't afford the care, I was making so much money on the other end. What are you talking about? Right. If they get to you, yeah. then you treat them. That's yeah. how you, you that, that, that's how you do it. So. That's how I was able to really put together a really wonderful practice of people that I really liked and I felt really liked me. We talked about my, my traditional Chinese medicine. I had people going to acupuncturists that wouldn't tell me about it because they wouldn't want to hurt my feelings. They said, you know, I said, you know what? I've been going to see my acupuncturist for 10 years. Why yeah. didn't you tell me? You know what I mean? I, she said, I just didn't want to hurt your feelings. That's That's so, so people, we take care of people. But people take care of us, too. These kind of conversations make me think of certain patients. I remember a patient when I had to give really bad news to. I don't want to be misty on this stuff. But really bad news to. And I was trying to explain to her what was going on. And it was bad. And she just, I don't know how I looked. But she just grabbed my head and said, it's going to be all right, Dr. Hendricks. <laughs> you know, it's going to be all right. She was trying to make She was making me feel better. Yeah. I mean, it really was. She yeah. was just, and, and she was going to die, and she knew it. She said, don't worry. It's, we'll be all right. It's a privilege taking care of people like this. Yeah. And, that's, and that was the difference in the doctors that we went up against in the country that we right, did. Right. That they felt they were the privileged people. And... They weren't the privileged people. Our patients are privileged. And the patient we were taking care of, and I'll just tell somebody that it was 
a, a very wealthy patient, obviously, that could get us around the planet. They appreciated us for, for, for the things that we taught them while, while we were taking care of them and the things we explained to them. And they knew the difference. Yeah. They knew the difference when, when they were seeing doctors that were more concerned about themselves as doctors than they were their people as patients. Someone I know, I was out of town and someone was referring a patient to me who happened to be a celebrity and I was away. So someone else I said is available to cover me to take care of this patient. And, and that doctor wound up, you know, taking pictures with the patient, da, 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 da. needless to say, that patient wound up not staying with that doctor, you know, because mm-hmm. they, they, they forgot that, you know, these people want to be their patients first. And, you know, you could, you could bond with them over stuff, but you can't, they don't want you being a fan, you know, they know the difference. Yeah. They know the difference when you're, and when you're with them enough, you can see how you, uh, how people react to them. Yeah. Yeah. But what you made is a great point. And the point about VIPs, you know, how, how sometimes VIPs get treated and in, just like you said, in, in getting that concierge VIP care, often you're trying to be respectful. So you don't look at their groin and you miss the tumor in their groin. You know, all too often you hear about that kind of thing, that if you're trying to be respectful and not do an exam that should be done, you might miss something. And that's, and that's where we were when, in the patient we talked about before. Yeah. We examined that patient. We knew that patient. Yeah. And the other doctors didn't. The more you can teach a patient, the more they can really help you out. And so you spend time with them. I'm accustomed to it because I'm with a patient for nine months, usually when I'm with a delivery. So I get a really chance to know people. That's true. And so that really helps out the, the fact that the, the women that I've gotten a chance to know and the families that I've gotten a chance to know with their husbands or with their significant others are, are special people that trust you because you spend so much time with them and you like them. You, you really enjoy them. As so people. I want to ask you that. So. Sure. We've talked about in the past, I've had certain patients, you know, where the outcome doesn't necessarily go perfectly and the patient, it turns out, is not a nice person or whatever it is. You, you said you like taking care, you, you only want to take care of people you like and who like you. How were you able to do that? Have you, have you ever fired someone? Yes. At, like, how do you realize it right away? Like, I, I haven't been able to do that. And there's so many times now where I'm like, Gosh, I I wish, you know, the, I I don't like taking care of this person because they make me feel so bad. Like, how do you? I think some of my heroes did the same thing, yeah. and I've watched them do it. Yeah. That um, sometimes you're not always right about this, but at one place you know you're not giving the best care to this patient. And the strange thing about it, if you I see the word fire, if if, if you decide that a patient doesn't need to stay with you. The strange thing is they will send you more patients. It's the strangest thing. You'll think that something happens where you say, listen, I can't take care of you because you don't follow my instructions or, or, or you're not listening to me a point and maybe another doctor can get to you another point. I mean, I've had patients in the hospital say, no, I don't want to leave you. Doctor. I said, well, you, I'm not helping you. Yeah. You know, you're almost, I have one patient I'm thinking about now that she almost bled to death and, and she needed another doctor because you're not listening to me because you need this surgery. Yeah. And we need to do it. And she ended up doing the surgery. So it, it kind of helped out yeah. that, that discussion. But at one place, you just have to, that people need to know that you're doing it for them. And then they can make the right decisions for themselves. They kind of put you at a place where you have to say, I just don't think this relationship's going to work out. You know, it's just not. But and, and the thing of it is, it's a good thing to do because they appreciate it. And like I said, they send you patients. They they refer their their friends to you because a lot of times you're right. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're not. I had a patient that I was so disgusted with, and I was leaving the hospital, thinking that I was going to get rid of her as a patient. And I ran into a perinatologist that talked to me about people that have that particular problem, and that was. Something I really learned, they just said, they don't, I mean, it had to do with taking, sneaking sugar in the hospital. She was a brittle diabetic. And 
She wouldn't listen to me. And I just said, I don't want to take care of her anymore. She had a pregnancy. And don't you think as much about your pregnancy? I really was blaming her. And, and, and they said, sometimes they, they, they really can't do it. And so you have to really kind of soften your blow with them. And so I, a lot of times you're not right. Sometimes, yeah. you know, you yeah, have to say. But then if it's not a good mix, it's not a good mix. So what are you watching? What are you reading? What are you... What are, well, I'm not doing much but Chinese, and I've just finished writing the script. I'm, you know, that's I'm, amazing. I'm, Which I feel like your script is going to get made. Uh, I hope that it does. I would love to. I think it will. I think I think I put in a lot of time to it. Have you shown um, it to anyone yet? I have people waiting for it because I've talked to people about it. Okay. So they're waiting for this script, and and like I said, I'm a little late. I'm I'm you know I Tulsa the hundredth anniversary. I should have had it ready in uh, Memorial Day. So I'm a little late because that's when that riot happened. Huh. Um, but I, I think it's going to happen. I think I have a way of it's going to happen, and I think it should happen. A lot of ha- a lot of of, of uh, documentaries on Tulsa happened around this time. The right. one you saw, the one that uh, the, the the basketball player, yeah, the Russell Westbrook, yeah. yeah, the one he did was for the, that was for the History Channel. That's a real good one. That was my actually actually that's my favorite one. Yeah, yeah. And I've yeah. seen several. I shouldn't say, but I've seen several documentaries, but that was my favorite one. No, yeah, I still think, yeah, but there needs to be a, it's a feature length, I imagine, that you wrote, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. Sure. so I still think there needs to be a feature length film. And my other question is, did you watch, a, Damon Lindelof had this HBO show called The Watchmen. Did you ever see that? No, I didn't, but I've heard about that. But I kind of want, they told me that that was a pretty significant part of that. Right. right it was his his obviously imagination of it like it'll have nothing that, to do with your script but it it got people's attention too to this was a real thing but but that's why i decided not to because i all i wanted to see were documentaries i've studied tulsa i've talked to people that were around tulsa i knew what had happened i have a perspective about it i didn't want to deal with anybody else's perspective of of a drama that happens around it I, right I, I have my own concept and I kind of want to flesh that out. And it's based on fact and data. And and the people in it are are based on human beings that, that happen. You know, yeah, so, no, that makes sense. So, you know, I'm not so I'm not having the opportunity. And remember, we're coming in the middle of this pandemic. So during the pandemic, I was home, you know, and so I didn't have to travel to school. And which is the bad thing about it is, is, is my my acupuncture skills aren't aren't there yet because we have to get away this pandemic is over because we can't practice on people mm. because we're not in school right now. So with the things that I, I was able to do more writing, I was able to, you know, read the things that, that, that I was thinking of through my own imagination of what I could make happen. I feel like someone's going to approach you to write a movie about your life one day. Has anyone approached you? Cause we were talking, we've talked to some doctors who have actually been approached about like TV scripts about their life. It seems like you have, have you ever been approached like that? No, I don't. That's true. I don't think of my life as being exciting. I just think of this as all <laughs> Very I've done. exciting. It's, it's so exciting. You just, you know, I'm able to look at. And he's a spy. <laughs> God. This guy is such an inspiration to me. Yes. Yeah. This is made for a great podcast. I already, I'm so excited about it. Thank you so much for being oh, on our show. Good luck for everything now. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Gross Anatomy and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can check out more episodes on the evolving sights, smells, and sounds of medicine. Gross Anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.